Good morning, good morning. Hey, if you would, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. We're going to work on the call of Samson this morning. While you're turning there, um, wouldn't worship good this morning? Yes, yes. I live for that. Totally live for that. Yeah, if you give yourself, if you give your heart uh, to the worship that happens here on Sunday mornings, if you, if you give your, your heart, your mind, and your body to that 35, 40 minutes that we do every single, every single week, uh, you could, if, if you only gave yourself to that, you could be a brand new person in a year. It, it, changes, it changes who people are. Uh, I, I've, I've noticed that just in my walk with Jesus that people who worship go further and faster with Jesus than any other kind of people. Uh, like they go, for even, they go further and faster than even people who read the Bible from daylight to dark. People who will give their hearts to Jesus in worship. It's a really big thing. So, um, yeah, worship band, like major high fives. Major high fives. Uh, awesome. Yeah, we're going to begin the, uh, the life of uh, Samson. We're continuing on in our series of, uh, on the book of Judges this morning. And um, I had planned on only spending two weeks in the life of Samson. Um, already destroyed that. And I'm going to spend at least four weeks in Samson, maybe six. There's just a, there's a lot here. We, we don't need to go too fast. And so this morning I want to spend uh, mostly on just the first seven verses of Samson's life. Um, Samson's a really interesting character, and we want to... We want to begin to focus in a little bit and begin be able to extract what the Holy Spirit is saying, not just to those people way back then, but to us guys here in the room. Um, one of the tragedies is when we approach the Bible as if it were just a word to God to those people or maybe maybe my neighbor, but this is actually a word for us. And uh, so we want to do that. If you grew up in church at all, you probably already know the story of Samson pretty well. You at least know a couple key features. There's really no one like Samson. You've got to love him. He's big and strong. And he's got great hair. Samson's got great hair. Um, but some of the other things I love about Samson, aside from the fact that he's big and strong and, and has great hair, uh, Samson is sort of mysterious and enigmatic. He likes to tell riddles. A bit of a jokester. Um, he's a riddler. Uh, he's sort of odd. Samson loves to joke. Uh, and when it comes to fighting, there's really, really no one like Samson. In fact... One of the accounts that we'll get to here in a couple of weeks uh, talks about how Samson once took the jawbone of a donkey um, and he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. That's pretty impressive. That's what I, in our house we call that beast mode. You guys seen the you guys seen the video of Marshawn Lynch on his sixty-five yard run a couple about a year and a half ago? Marshawn Lynch, Seattle Seahawks. He goes into beast mode. He gets about 10 yards past the line of scrimmage and some unfortunate soul ran up to him to tackle him and he just kind of takes his arm like this and the guy goes flying like 15 yards. I don't think I'm exaggerating. It was unbelievable. He went beast mode. Well, that's Samson. He goes beast mode. He takes the jawbone of an ass and knocks a thousand. He doesn't just knock them down. He kills them, which brings up another scenario. And this is the part that I never understood about that little spot in the narrative. How dumb are these guys that Samson's killing? Like after Samson kills 10 or 15 with the jawbone of an ass, you figure people just give up, right? Like if you're the guy, I want to know just how dumb are numbers 701 through 1,000. The guy has, you can't kill more than one person at a time with the jawbone of a donkey. 
how dumb are these guys who are continually coming at him? But either way, either, either they're incredibly dumb or, or Samson is not just strong. Perhaps he's pretty fast and he's running people down and he's just whacking them. It's a heck of a story. If you like blood and guts, you're going to love Samson. But Samson's also the mischievous judge. Uh, there's something in Samson which never really grew up. Samson's the 13-year-old kid who lives in the neighborhood and he lives to torture the uptight people who live around the corner. Yeah, that's, that's Samson. For instance, um, Samson didn't just fight the Philistines. Uh, he, he, he once caught 300 foxes. I love this story. Had trouble believing it for a long time. Um, the reason I had trouble believing it is because I've lived in Kentucky for the most part my whole life. I've spent a little time in North Carolina, which isn't that much different than Kentucky. And in my entire life in Kentucky, I've seen about eight foxes. Samson somehow catches 300 of them, and he lights their tails on fire, and he turns them loose in Philistine fields to burn their crops down. Now, how many of you know that you don't have to catch foxes and light their tails on fire to burn down Philistine crops? See, Samson has a penchant for flair. I mean, there's something extravagant about this guy. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the time when I was in high school and some buddies and I would go and buy 49-cent bean burritos from Taco Bell and we would launch them into the windshields of oncoming traffic. You see, great mischief has a capacity not just for nuisance, but it's nuisance mixed with creative genius. Some people, some people eat Taco Bell bean burritos my friends and I, we would launch them. And let me tell you, when, when you launch a bean burrito at a guy's car going 60 miles an hour, each of you, it is impressive what happens. Uh, we decided to take it up another level one Friday night. And <clears throat> so I let a guy drive my truck. And another guy who will go unnamed and I, we, we would lay down in the back of the truck with bean burritos unwrapped, ready to roll. And we would go uh, driving through the park at night. And there's always that one guy who's got to get his run in, right? So we, just, we would just roll up by the guy. And when, when a truck approaches a runner and then kind of gets at the same pace, the runner will inadvertently, they'll slow down. And then when the guy stops, the, uh, my friend and I, we jump up out of the bed of the truck and we take bean burritos and we smash this guy with them. It's a joke. It's okay. You can laugh. It, it really happened. It's okay. Jesus has already forgiven me. I mean, that guy hasn't. But Jesus has. I asked Jesus about it the other day. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, that time that I, got, I smashed the bean burritos on the poor guy. Jesus is like, I, I don't remember that. But that's Samson. He, like, he doesn't just burn crops down. He lights animals on fire. It's a great visual. Imagine little foxes running around on fire, burning down your enemy's fields. Reminds me of a story I read the other day. My mom's shaking her head. She didn't know that story. <laughs> Revelation. There's no shame. Jesus is already forgiving me. I feel released. I don't live in her house anymore, so it's all good. You cannot talk me into shame. Either one of you. Samson's story of burning 
foxes in fields. Reminds me of another story I read the other day. Apparently a true story about a guy whose house was in, just infested with mice. And so called the exterminator over and they put some sort of like mouse bomb off. I really don't understand how these things work, but they put a mouse bomb off. All the mice run out of the house and they run into these piles of leaves that he has raked in his front yard. Well, he decides he's going to do one better. So he's going to set the leaves on fire. And uh, he kills most of the mice, except one really hardy one, which runs out of the burning leaf pile, and the mouse runs on fire up the steps, underneath the door, into his living room, and expires on the dry rug, and his entire house bursts into flames. <laughs> oh, when I read this story, I read it on the airplane the other day when we were going to Los Angeles. Um, I couldn't quit laughing. Because the visual, just this one tiny bouncing burning mouse up the stairs dies right on the one place that a mouse shouldn't die when it's burning. And then you see the guy standing in front of his house and it's just... Uh, I, I find that incredibly entertaining. I'll tell you that story because it's sort of like bold and that's the sort of, sort of story that, that Samson comes to us packaged in it's this bold narrative everything in samson's life is bold thousand people struck down jawbone of a donkey crushed everything is in bold colors but not everything in samson's life is great a lot of it's pretty pretty pathetic Uh, one of the things we learn about samson is that he really really loves women like all of them and one of the other things that we learn about samson is that he's not incredibly intelligent Uh, a case could be made uh, for Samson that he's actually an idiot Uh, Samson has a couple bits of information that he shouldn't tell anyone and he tells the exact information that he should never tell anyone to the very people who want to kill him not a smart guy so we want to look this morning at this guy who's written in bold colors for us that we might hear the voice of the spirit Um, I want to start really this morning just with the call of Samson. So the first seven verses out of Judges chapter 13. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is to never be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God, from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me, and he looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Uh, A couple things right from the beginning. Let's put verse 1 back up, please. We need to talk about the times that Samson is born into. Verse 1, it's a familiar refrain, but it's actually a little bit different. Okay, Uh, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, how many times have we read that phrase in the book of Judges? Over and over and over. And in fact, this is the seventh time in the book of Judges that the people of God do evil in his eyes and then he turns them over 
to foreign oppressors. But um, there's a couple things that I want you to notice in verse 1 that are a little bit different. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice is that uh, there's a particular clan that is ruling over Israel, and it's the Philistines. Now, we've seen them a little bit in the book of Judges, but for the most part, they have not been oppressing the people of Israel. It's been other people who have been oppressing Israel. So in the time of Gideon, it is, it is not the Philistines who oppress Israel, but it's the Midianites. You guys remember the Midianites? They're the, they, they oppressed Israel in the time of Gideon. And then a little bit later, it's the Ammonites. And, and the reason I bring this up is because the Philistines have a different method for oppressing the people of Israel. They have a different way of going about it, and it's, and it's, and it's completely different than anything we've read up to this point um, in the book of Judges. For instance, the Midianites, if you remember when Gideon was raised up to be a judge and a savior in Israel, the Midianites would come in and they would steal Israel's crops. So Israel would, would grow the garden and they would tend the garden, and right at harvest time, Midian would come in with an army and they would take all the food. And by the way, there was no Kroger, so there were no other options. It was really sad. And then a little bit later, the Ammonites, which is in the time of Jephthah. The Ammonites, they, didn't, they weren't uh, interested in, in stealing crops so much. as They were just big bullies. They would come and they would bring their army and they would say, get off of our land. And there was, it was more of a land battle. It was more of a military sort of a deal. But here, the Philistines are doing something that's the exact opposite. Up to this point in Judges, it's the stick that has oppressed Israel. But now it's the carrot. And what we get with the Philistines is we get two things. The, the Philistines have seduced and assimilated Israel into their culture. And the Israel is right on the edge of losing their distinctiveness as the people of God. And they do this in two ways. The Philistines seduced and assimilated Israel uh, by trade. Now, um, the Philistines at this time, they had iron, and they were masters uh, in ironwork. And because of this, they had great military weapons, and they could have come in, and they could have just smashed Israel with a superior army. But they didn't do that. They came in, and they took their uh, ironworking skills... And they made it the basis of trade so that if anyone in Israel wanted to plow their field or grow a garden or have hinges on the doors of their house, who did they have to go to? They had to go to the Philistines. And how many know that it's hard to make war on people you're trying to extract money from? And so it was a bit more seductive. And then the other way that the Philistines began to assimilate and seduce Israel was through intermarriage. So they gave their sons... Israel. They gave their daughters to Israel. They received Israel's sons and daughters, and they were just going to breed them into non-existence, if that makes sense. And so rather than having a stick be over them, now Israel has the carrot. And one of the ways that we know that the oppression was slightly different is the textual clues in verse 1. And it's actually the silence. It's the thing that we don't hear in verse 1. Uh, this, again, this is the seventh time that the people have been ruled by someone else. And it's the seventh time that they've done, ease, done evil and turned away from the Lord. But the thing that we don't hear here, that we hear six other times, is the, the people cry out. I want you to notice in verse 1, Israel does evil, but no one cries out. So when God begins to raise up Samson, God is raising up a judge, even though the people have not cried out. And the reason they're not crying out is because they're not miserable. In fact, they're quite happy. And how many of you know that you can be oppressed and be happy? How many of you understand that just because you're happy doesn't mean that you're not oppressed? I I need you to get this this morning. Just because everything's pretty okay in your life, it doesn't mean that you're not oppressed. Israel was actually oppressed and they were happy about it. The times are telling. They're times of compromise. They're times of high delight. And even though it's times of high delight, Israel is actually becoming less and less 
Israel. Less and less walking in her own calling. Less and less separate, unified, and sovereign as a nation. In other times, Israel was oppressed and overrun, but miserable. The lack of misery here is telling. A lot of times we believe that oppression always leads to our misery. And and the really scary thing I want to tell you this morning is oppression doesn't always lead to misery. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, at the very beginning of being an alcoholic, it's awesome. It's great fun being a drunk at the beginning. Just because you're happy, it doesn't mean you're not oppressed. Um, The very beginning of having a pill addiction is awesome. You can bomb out. Kids don't bother me anymore. Four Lord tabs later, no one bothers me. It's awesome. I'm loving this. However, you do that for a while longer, and, and the narrative changes there. The beginning of a porn addiction is awesome. It's exhilarating. Got quiet in here. The beginning of maxing out credit cards is awesome. That trip to the mall, freaking awesome. All that stuff, closets full of things we don't need, incredible. Yeah, just because you're happy, it doesn't mean that you're not oppressed. And so Israel's actually oppressed. She's been overrun, but she's not miserable. She's actually been assimilated, and it's the worst thing that can happen to a nation. It's the worst thing that can happen to the people of God, assimilation. And so this is what the Lord does. It's actually a barren time, even though no one knows it. And I love how God works. In a barren time, he comes to a barren woman and he promises her a son. (laughs) This is what the Lord does. By the way, the, the activity of the Lord is almost always poetic in nature. If you'll remember last week, we were talking about Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. And God raises up the son of a prostitute to deliver a nation who had prostituted themselves out to other gods. God is, God is not just in the deliverance business. He does it in a particular manner, and it's almost always poetic in nature. It's one of the reasons you need to know your own history. You need to know your own life, and you need, to, you need to know your own encounter with God so that you can see all the ways in which God intersects and is moving in your life. You need to be able to read your life in a poetic fashion. If you can't, you'll miss a good deal of what the Lord's doing in your life. Son of a prostitute, deliver a prostituted nation. A barren time, Raising up a barren woman to give birth to a deliverer. This is how the Lord works. And um, I really love the, the encounter here. Um, Manoah's wife, she's just out in the fields. And the angel comes up to her. And right away, he's just right into it. You're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. There's like no warm-up conversation. Uh, the Lord is so awkward sometimes. Um, it's basically what happens is, is an angel comes up and he walks over to Andrea and he says, Andrea, how's your uterus? <laughs> no, I want you to imagine going into Walmart and running into someone you haven't seen for, say, a year and asking them about their reproductive, reproductive organs. This is what the Lord does. He's very awkward, very awkward. Shows right up. He says, you're barren, puts his finger right on the issue. And by the way, how many of you know that... Uh, Manoah's wife didn't want to hear this. This would not be great. Until he says, and you'll have a son. The diagnosis wasn't great, but the promise was. Because uh, barrenness in this time is a really big deal. Not only is it the end of a family, 
but it's thought of as being the result of sin and it's a sign of judgment. Anyone, any woman in the Old Testament who was barren, she would have been dealing with immense guilt and shame because she would have considered herself, and not just her own self, but everyone in her community would be whispering behind her back, wonder what she's done. And by the way, uh, barrenness was always the woman's problem. It was never the man's problem. It, it was never the swimmers. It's always, it's always the pipes, right? <laughs> Science. <laughs> Health class 101. <laughs> um, I think that, that was accurate, though. And even though there's no sign that Manoah's wife had sinned, she was a stand-in for the whole nation, and the nation had sinned. And they actually were under judgment. And God raises up a deliverer. Um, the thing I want to point out here about Samson's arrival is that it's unique. It's, it's unique uh, for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's unique is it's unique because it's the angel of the Lord who comes to Manoah's wife to say that you're going to have a son. In the whole Bible... Uh, this, this only happens one other time, and it's uh, in the birth narrative of Isaac. Um, uh, John the Baptist didn't get the angel of the Lord. He just got Gabriel, the angel. Uh, and when the Bible says it's the angel of the Lord, what we're really getting at is here, it's pre-incarnate Jesus shows up, God, in bodily form and says, you're going to have a son. One of the things the Scripture is telling us, and one of the things that the Spirit is telling Manoah's wife is, this is important. Like, how many of you know that when something's really, really important, you don't send a messenger, you go yourself? Right? Like, when God wanted to really get things done, He went Himself. He sent His Son, Jesus. That's how we know that, that whatever's going on in the earth was a big deal. And so here, in Samson's day, we know that Samson is a really important. This is a critical moment, huge assignment, because the Lord doesn't send a messenger, He sends Himself. And then the second reason that we know that this is really unique is because God had called Samson to be a Nazarite and to be a Nazarite from birth. Did you guys notice there when we were reading that the Lord says all this weird stuff about Samson? Don't cut his hair. Don't drink any wine. In fact, don't even eat grapes. And, and no raisins either. And don't touch a dead body. He doesn't say don't touch a dead body here, but it does in, in Numbers chapter 6. It talks about the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow is essentially three things. Number one, don't cut your hair. Number two, don't drink any wine or anything else fermented. And by the way, don't even eat grapes. Um, and don't eat raisins. Which is to say, it's not about the alcohol. Some people are always like, well, I took a Nazarite vow and I don't drink anymore. Well, great. It's actually not even about the alcohol. It's about, it's down to the grapes, y'all. Like, don't even eat the raisins. And don't touch any dead bodies. Don't touch any dead bodies. It's sort of a strange vow. And people would take a Nazarite vow based upon Numbers chapter 6, if a person wanted to devote themselves to God in a special way, they would take this vow. But one of the key features of the vow in Numbers chapter 6 is that it was temporary and that it was meant for a season. Okay? So the Nazarite vow was temporary, meant for a season. You didn't live under the Nazarite vow your whole life. Uh, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do it for years and years on end. You, you did it for a season. You said, God, I, I really love you and I want to I devote my life to you in a new way and I want to I consecrate myself to you in a new way. And you give yourself to God. And it would be for a period of time. And then at the end, you'd cut your hair off. And you'd give the Lord a brand new lamb. And you'd burn the hair and the lamb up on the altar. Really uh, delicious, by the way. The, the smoke from the hair gives a distinct flavor to the lamb. If you've never had hair-smoked lamb. Where's Josh? 
Josh, can we get that going at Brothers? Josh is gone already. Never listens to me. But the difference with Samson wasn't just that he was a Nazarite, but, but God comes to him and says that Samson will be a Nazarite from birth. See, see, your mom and dad can't make you a Nazarite. Your mom and dad can't make you a Nazarite. God makes people Nazarites. Really, really unique. Really unique. God says he's going to be a Nazarite from the time he's born to the time he dies. Not only that, but God was so serious about this, he even had Manoah's wife, Samson's own mother, she had to abide by the Nazarite vow while she carried him. Even while he was in the womb. This is how serious the Lord was about this. And so here's what I want you to see. I've spent a little time on this. I had to do a lot of setup because we need to understand this. Um, the uniqueness of the circumstances of Samson's life are saying something to those people, but they're also saying something to us. And so here's, here's the dichotomy of what we have. What we have is on one side, we have Israel who's oppressed by the Philistines and they, they're happily oppressed. They've actually become assimilated. They're right on the edge of losing their distinctiveness as the people of God. They're right on the edge of losing what it is to be Israel. They're, they're quickly losing it. They, they barely worship the Lord. Most of the people don't even remember who the Lord is. They worship Philistine gods and they trade with Philistine and they marry Philistine wives and their culture is becoming more and more diluted, more and more diluted, more and more diluted and they're right on the edge of losing everything. In fact, in a couple hundred years, they might not even speak Hebrew anymore. They're, they're quickly going. But then on the other side, God is raising up a deliverer, giving a deliverer to a barren woman in a barren time and God says, I want him to be a Nazarite and by the way, the word Nazarite comes from the word Nazir, which means to be separated or to be set apart or to be put away from. And so God is saying to the people who have been assimilated, I'm going to raise up a deliverer who is separate again. Does this make sense? So even that's a word. And so the idea that God is getting at here is the idea of holiness. It's the idea of being set apart. That's what holy means. Holy means to be set apart. It means to be other. Karl Barth, one of the world's most famous theologians, um, when he talks about God, he always talks about God being holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy other, and he's talking about God's holiness. It's You can't put God in a category. He's something different. Whatever definition you could place on a person, you can almost never place it upon God because he exceeds everyone. And so God, in a time of great assimilation, when people have lost their national identity, have lost their love for God, God raises up a deliverer and he calls him to be a Nazarite. And God is actually giving a word to all of his people to come out and be separate. Hope that makes sense. But this idea of holiness, it wasn't just for the people of Israel. It's actually for you and I today. Even now God calls people to be holy, to be unique to be distinct and to be set apart, to not be assimilated, to not be the masses who are swallowed in the jaws of popular culture. You see, assimilation is oppression with a teaspoon of sugar. And by the way, in America today, uh, we're assimilated, we're oppressed with a teaspoon of sugar. Uh, The people who rule us now in America, they don't rule us with a stick, they rule us by the carrot. And so this is the reason that Samson is so important. God is, God is calling people to be separate, to be holy, to be something different. 
Now, here's the trouble with holiness. Um, the trouble with holiness is that on one side you have assimilation and loss of distinctiveness. Assimilation and loss of distinctiveness over here. And in fact, we, we know this has happened in the church because uh, you can take any sociological metric that you want to take and the church is, for the most part, no different than unbelievers. So when it comes to marriage and divorce, the church is the very same as the rest of the world. When it comes to addiction, we're just, we're just as porn addicted, we're just as prescription pain addicted, we're just as, we're just as addicted as the rest of the world. The numbers, they wash out. And so one of the things is that tells me is that, is that we've been assimilated, that the jaws of popular culture have come crashing around us and we've been completely assimilated. So on one side, this is the trouble of holiness, on one side we have assimilation. And we know it's happened, and it's happened not just to the church out there, but it's happened to the church in here. And we know it's happened because we're no different. But then the other side, and this is what oftentimes when it happens when people realize that they're in danger of being assimilated or they have been assimilated. Uh, the other side is that in an effort to be holy, we set ourselves out and we define holiness by that which we are not a part of. So we do this. We make the checklist. No wine, no dead bodies, no haircuts, no dancing, no TV, no smoking, no R-rated movies, no Las Vegas, no bourbon, no going to town. And what ends up happening is you live in more and more isolation and pretty soon you're living off in your own little weird world. You're living as a hermit and you're living a hard, hard life. You're living a life that God didn't even ask you to live. Completely unable to affect the world that you've been placed in. So this is the point. It's the difficulty. On one side you've got assimilation and on the other side you've got isolation. Most of the people who have made a significant effort to be holy end up over here in isolated, angry land. So what's the point? The point here this morning is that holiness is not just about what a person doesn't do or drink or the places that a person doesn't go. Holiness is set-apartness, and it's about reaching out and going after God. What, real holiness is always about reaching out and going after God. See, holiness is a byproduct of actually being in fellowship with God. Go and be around God. Because if you go and you hang out with God, who He is comes off and begins to affect who you are. And God is the most holy, distinctly other person in the entire universe. You actually can't become holy apart from fellowship with Him. You can not drink any beer. You can throw all the natural light out of the refrigerator. By the way, I would recommend that. There's so many other good beers out there. But you could throw the natural light right out of the refrigerator. Never drink it again. And you could, you could never watch another R-rated movie. And you could never go to Las Vegas. And you would never go to New Orleans. You just, you just wouldn't go there. You could, and you probably wouldn't even go to New York City. So you've never been to Vegas. You've never been to New York. You don't go to, La, you don't go to New Orleans. Uh, you don't drink natural light anymore. And you don't watch R-rated movies. And you still have a corrupt, terrible heart that doesn't have any affection at all for Jesus. And even though you've got the checklist down, you've missed the point of life, and he doesn't know you. This is the trouble with holiness. However, when holiness becomes about pursuing God, things happen. Things happen without you even noticing it. If you or I ever become serious about pursuing God, if we ever decide, you know what, I'm going to make 
God and enjoying Him the chief end of my entire life. The thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my days is figure out ways to know and enjoy God. One of the things that happens is, is that you end up making choices that make choices that you never even had to make, if this makes sense. Why? Because you're a limited being. Uh, every person in here is a limited being. You, you have limited capacity. You can only work so hard. You'll eventually give out. You can only stay up so many hours. You'll eventually go to sleep. And you can only do calculus so long before your brain explodes. You're a limited being. And when limited beings begin to make significant choices about pursuing God in their limited life, that one yes to God ends up being a thousand no's. I've only got so much time in my day. By the way, I don't think TV is evil. I love TV. But when you pursue God, you may find out that you watch less TV. Why? Because you only have so many hours in the day. And I've got to fit in enjoying God somewhere into my time. Right? I've got to figure it out. I've got to somehow have a moment where I can enjoy God. And so when the Lord begins to raise up Samson, he says, no wine, no dead bodies, don't cut the hair. And when he says no wine, what do you, what do you, it's not even about alcohol. What it's about is this. It's about no pleasure because in the Bible, uh, wine is always connected with pleasure. And it's not even that God says, I don't want you to be uh, a person who experiences pleasure. It's not that at all. It's no wine, no pleasure. And it's actually an invitation. Come and find your pleasure in me. Samson, would you come find your pleasure in me? And when God says, don't touch a dead body, it's not about, it's not about finding dead people and feeling of their eyeballs or something really gross like that. It's about saying, it's about, it's about, it's about making a commitment to be a part of life because everywhere God is, there's life around him. And when God says, don't cut your hair, he's saying, live, let there be an outward sign of what, what is happening on the inside. Let there be an outward outward symbol of the inward reality. The fact that you've devoted yourself to finding pleasure in me, the fact that you've devoted your life to life, let it, let it be known. Let people, let people see it. That's what holiness is. I want to say four things this morning about holiness. Number one, separation in holiness is part of positive dedication to the Lord. Not just being separate from, but separate to. And by the way, I want to say right off the bat that this is not the trajectory of Sam, Samson. See, Samson just lived by a code. No wine, check. No dead people, check. No disco chop, check. But where was the warm-hearted love for God? It was non-existent. See, we can't gather our identity by what we don't do. See, it's possible to be dedicated to the code, but never, never have our hearts touched by the God who gave the code. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but just because you don't eat gluten, it doesn't mean that you're healthy. Everyone's gluten-free these days. Well, I don't eat gluten. It's part of my identity. I don't eat gluten. Just because you don't eat gluten, it doesn't mean you're actually healthy. And a lot of times these days, we find our identities by the things that we don't do rather than the person we pursue. You'll never get your identity by the things you don't do, only by who you pursue. And then furthermore, how many of you understand this? That just because, 
Just because I go and I rob convenience stores and I ride a Harley, it doesn't mean that I'm a hell's angel. How many of you know that if you are a hell's angel, you're probably going to knock off convenience stores and you're going to ride a Harley? See, what I'm getting at is, just because you have a list of things that you don't do, it doesn't actually mean that you've had any fellowship with God at all. However, if you do have fellowship with God, it's going to order your life in a peculiar manner. You might find yourself knocking off convenience stores in the spirit, riding a Harley that you didn't even know you had. Holiness is always an issue of fellowship and communion with Jesus. You know, you're actually not called to joyless separation. People who try to live holy and end up miserable are not living holy. Misery is not connected with holiness. Joy is connected with holiness. And the reason joy is connected with holiness is because there is nothing as satisfying or as joy-filled as being in communion with Jesus Christ. Nothing else will satisfy But when we know God, there is joy. And by the way, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Very different. I'm not always happy, but I have joy. Joy supersedes circumstances. Communion and fellowship with God is the joy-filled life. If there's no joy, I don't care what the list is that you do or don't do, you're not holy. Joy is connected. Uh, The second thing, uh, there is strength in separation. Probably the number one feature of Samson's life, the reason that we all remember him and the reason that he is taught in every Sunday school class in America is because Samson's the strong guy. Like, he and Jesus had an arm wrestling match and Samson won. He's the strong guy. But one of the things that I hear in it is that I hear that God gives a man a call to be separate, to be a Nazarite, to come out, to be unique, and to be distinctive. And God makes that man the strongest man in the Bible physically strong. I think the Spirit is saying something to us, that to the degree that we live holy, to the degree that we live separate, to the degree that we live unique and and devoted to God, not just by what we don't do, but by our warm-hearted love toward God, is the degree to which strength will come upon you. Um, I'm also reminded of Daniel. You remember the first chapter of Daniel. Uh, the king invites Daniel and his buddies to his table, right? And what's the narrative? Again, the narrative is exactly this one. It's one of assimilation. Uh, Come out of Israel. Come into Babylon. Sit at my table. I'm going to educate you. Eat my food. Learn my ways. Yada, yada, yada. And then Daniel eventually draws a line and he says, we will do all these other things, but there's one thing we're not going to do. We're not going to eat from your table. Uh, All we want is green vegetables and we want water. And then after a period of time, you come and check us out and see if we don't look better than your guys. And so the chief of the king's table comes back after a period of time. And sure enough, Daniel and his Copatriots are actually fatter, which is just the biblical word for healthier, even though they'd eaten vegetables and drank water. It makes no sense. What's the point? The point is, is that Daniel had drawn a line and they were not assimilated and he began to feed himself on living things, vegetables. I think the, the, the symbolism shouldn't be lost here. Daniel and his friends began to feed themselves. They began to be nourished on living things and they began to drink water, which is pure things. See, if you, if you eat the same things and you drink the same things that everyone else does, you'll be like them. But if we get our nourishment from something different, uniqueness is established again. And that's actually the place of strength. When you live separate, that's when God's grace becomes 
evident in your life. And whether you ever make a Nazarite vow or not, who cares? But if you live separate to God, if you live devoted to Him, the grace of God will come upon your life in a way, it will be as though you had long hair and everyone will know you by your strength. Does this make sense? Warm-hearted affection for Jesus, living to God, living with a great yes that has a million no's behind it, will cause the grace of God to activate strength in your life. Not just strength that you're aware of either, strength that everyone else can see. Uh, Number three, separation comes with enablement. In verse 25, it talks about how the Spirit stirred Samson. See, it's the Spirit that stirs, and it's the Spirit that strengthens, and it's the Spirit that enables a believer to live separate. It's not about willpower. If you try to do things in willpower, you will fail. You will fail. However, it is about the little choices that you make, and it's about cooperating with the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus right now, you have the Spirit, which is to say that it's actually possible for you to live a holy, separate, dedicated life to Jesus. If you're a believer in the room right now, and you're completely addicted and you're oppressed, uh, you have a way out of addiction and oppression. You can actually beat it. I don't care what it is. Because the Spirit is in you. Uh, it, it, one of the implications is, is that you can actually live like Jesus lived. Uh, a lot of times people, one of the great lies in the church is that uh, you'll never be like Jesus. Oh, I'll never be like Jesus. We've made Jesus a hero, not realizing that Jesus didn't come to be a hero. He actually came to give you the Spirit by the very same spirit that raised him from the ground, and it's the very same spirit that allowed him to do the things that he did. See, Jesus did no miracles until he was baptized and received the spirit. Jesus, did, Jesus never cast out a devil with the God card. Do you know that? He never said, devil, get out, and you have to because I'm God. Never did it. He cast the devil out because he had the spirit. Jesus, Jesus never lived a holy life because he had the God card. He threw all the God cards down before he came. He lived divinely enabled by the Spirit. And so, not only is there strength in separation, but separation comes within the enablement of the Spirit. It's separation that actually activates the Spirit. And then number four, the pattern for holiness is Jesus. You know, I don't want to be assimilated, and you don't want to be assimilated. But we also don't want, the divine, we don't want to define distinctiveness in an isolationist manner. We want to engage the world. We want to be friends of sinners. This is where I'm going to whack y'all for a minute in the brain, okay? Um, how many of you understand that Jesus lived a holy life? It, it, actually, it was perfectly holy. Perfectly holy. And here's the crazy part. Jesus was perfectly holy, and he was a friend to sinners. In fact, one of the things that is leveled against Jesus over and over the, in the gospel is that Jesus is a drunk and a, and a glutton. Why? Because he parties. Jesus would hang out. And not only that, but there was something about Jesus who's the most holy person who ever walked the face of the earth who demonstrated the Father's heart, the otherness, the distinctiveness. And sinners, really bad people, bad people were attracted to him. They would, they would find him. They would find him. The reason I'm bringing it up is because of this. See, holiness is not being separated from the world. If you have disengaged from the world and if you have a really long list of things you don't do and you think you have warm-hearted love for God, but unbelievers and sinners don't like you, you're not holy. I just want, we would just put it out there right now. If, if sinners don't like you, you have missed the boat. 
If you can't have fellowship with really crazy people, then you have missed the boat. If your presence makes people who are smoking weed feel uncomfortable, you're missing the boat. If people who smoke weed aren't coming and following you around occasionally, you're missing the boat. See, we're called to be incarnational, which means we're called to bring the distinct kind of life that surrounds God to our community. Jesus sought out sinful people. In fact, he put them on his team. Find some of the worst people he could find and put them on his team. He went to Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector and he's oppressing his own brothers with the tax law of the horrible Romans. He is selling himself out and he's selling his own people out for money. And Jesus walks up to him one day and he says, you know, Matthew, I like you. Why don't you come and be a part of my team? You understand, Matthew is not a good guy. He's one of the worst guys. Jesus says, I'd like you to have you. Why don't you just... And Matthew's like, the Bible says he just gets up and he leaves everything. There was money on the table. See, holiness will cause people to leave money on the table. For something better. Jesus sought out sinful people. And they received life from him. Sinners were attracted to Jesus. There's something about God's kind of holiness which is attractive. Um, in First Chronicles chapter 16, 29... Uh, it's also in Psalm 96, verse 9. I, I remembered this verse this week. It says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Uh, in, in my translation, which is the one right before this, it says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I don't know if you're aware of this, but holiness is actually beautiful. We don't oftentimes connect those two words. Uh, mo- most of the time, we connect holiness with uh, another word, Hard. Uh, miserable, terrible. Uh, but the Bible over and over again connects uh, the word beautiful with holiness. This is, this is really, really important. One of, one of the things that the scripture is trying to tell us is, is that there's splendor and there's beauty in holiness, which means that it's attractive. It's the reason that sinners were attracted to Jesus. Uh, not only that, but when you read the book of Revelation, especially at the beginning, like chapters 4 and 5, when it describes the throne room, there's all this stuff that's happening around the throne room. So God is there, and he's sitting on his throne, and he's the most holy person in the entire universe, but it's not silent. In fact, it's very loud, because there's all this music in heaven. And how many of you know that the music in heaven is beautiful? It's, there's, there's beautiful music being played around God all the time, and he's the most holy person in the whole universe, and there's singing. There's people singing, and there's worship, and there's, and there's music, and there's angels, and there's elders, and there's creatures. And then the Bible goes into great detail in chapter 4 about there's all these colors that surround the throne of God. In fact, there's, there's an emerald rainbow that, that I, I don't even understand this, but there's an emerald rainbow, and I have a feeling that if there's an emerald rainbow in God's throne room, it's probably beautiful. There's all the, so there's color, there's music, there's singing, there's people that come before them, there's, there's communion, there's community, there's, it's togetherness. It's like, how many of you know that togetherness is beautiful? In fact, in Psalm 133, it says, how lovely it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil running off of Aaron's head and off of his beard down those robes. It touches everybody. It's like, it's like the coolest thing. So the Bible says, and it says, that's the place where the Lord commands a blessing. So in heaven, there's worship, there's music, there's the Lord, there's holiness, there's crazy color, and there's community. It's like everything. It's right there. Why? I'm trying to connect this idea that there is beauty and there is holiness, and they actually are byproducts. It's the same coin from two different sides. 
all around God. He's beautiful and he's holy. And not only that, when you get close to God, there's only this, there's this one song that's sung in heaven. And it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They've been singing this song for like a billion years. Actually, probably longer than that, but billion is pretty much the biggest number I can conceive. So they've been singing this song, and it's the only song they sing. And uh, it, uh, some people sometimes are offended by the worship at the vineyard. They're like, you guys uh, wear me out with the same phrase over and over again. Uh, dude, it's going to get worse. <laughs> like if you think that, like, that two and a half minutes when Hannah makes up something that isn't up there and then everyone sings it, and, and if, that's, if that's off-putting, uh, it's going to get way worse. There's been one song in heaven for like a billion years. They just sing it all the time. But then, then it begs the question, why? Why is there one song in heaven that they sing for a billion years? Like, why would angels continually sing the same song? And why would elders always fall off? How many times have the elders fallen off their thrones? Probably a billion times. Probably about a billion times. And then why would the creatures cry out over and over again? Why? Because there's something about God and there's something in Him that's so beautiful that they're continually amazed and the only appropriate response is that the Lord is holy. Fall off. Game over. Okay, start again. See, holiness is beautiful, but there's, but there's a certain kind of restraint to holiness. And we've already hinted at this. So you see, holiness and separation is the big yes, and behind it are a thousand no's. It's a yes to God, which settles a hundred, a thousand, a million other things. When you say yes to God, and you really say yes to God, it actually settles a hundred, a thousand, a million other things. One of the things that I want you to see in there is that in holiness, there's restraint. It's not everything. It's re- there's a restraint in holiness, and it's the restraint that makes it beautiful. If I could show you one picture, it's like this. It's the difference between an amateur and a master painter. Because an amateur painter gets the palette, and they get the canvas, and they're so enamored with the colors that they begin to put color on. And maybe they'll put a little yellow on, and they want the yellow to be more bold, and they apply more yellow and more yellow. And then they're like, oh, wow, purple is really pretty, and they put some purple on. And then we'll put some red, because all the colors are really pretty, and they'll put some purple and some red and some yellow, and then we'll use some orange and some purple and some red and some orange and some yellow. And they begin to work the canvas and work the canvas and work the canvas, and there's no restraint. It's all yeses and never any noes. And at the end of the day, what you have is a black canvas that's ugly. But a master painter has a vision. And a master painter is devoted to restraint. And a master painter knows that purple is beautiful, but it's not appropriate for this picture and will not use any purple And the end result is something that's stunning and actually allows the colors to run with a boldness and a vigor and a brightness that the amateur painter could never grab a hold of. See, the master painter doesn't say yes to everything because to do so is to dilute the purity of the palette. And so the question this morning is this, do you ever say no? Have you ever said no? Like to anything? Has your yes to God ever meant a no to anything? If your yes to God has never meant a no to anything, then you're taking the beautiful colors of grace and you're muddying them into browns and blacks that have no distinction or feature. 
I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but um, you're not even, you and I, we're not even, we're not even a lot of times called to paint with all the colors in the palette. Like you might just be a yellow person. For real. Pick up the yellow. Go crazy. Don't touch the purple. No one in here is reflecting the entire gallery of the Lord anyway. Let him work with you. Get a vision. Let him let him show you the peace that he would like to make out of your life in the way that he would like to display it in the museum of his kingdom. Have you ever said no? If not, then you're missing a chance for beauty. By far the most amazing, beautiful, and challenging believers that I'm ever around are people who have said no. But, but, it isn't, but they're not believers who said no first. They're believers who said yes to Jesus first. Said yes to Jesus in a profound, profound way. And they said yes so deeply, so deeply, so deeply, that it worked out in a million no's. You and I would only pick up on the no's. But, but if we're really perceptive, what we realize is that they actually said yes. And they, but they said yes more than you and I did. I've been around a couple people in my life who's, who, who gave a profound yes to Jesus. They're the most beautiful believers I've ever been around. There's something off of them. There's a fragrance that comes off of them, and it's so attractive, and it isn't heavy-handed. It isn't heavy-handed, and it isn't prescriptive. One of the things that I've, I've noticed about around a couple of the people who really have lived a separate and, uh, and an other life is that um, they don't walk around with this, uh, what I've done is what you should do mentality either. It's really phenomenal. I've been around some people who have made major sacrifices for Jesus and, and they don't live with this, oh, and by the way, you should do exactly what I've done. But there's this, but who they are is an invitation. Does that make sense? Like just who, they, just who they are is an invitation. Everybody around them, oh, you should come and walk in these ways. Say, say yes more deeply to Jesus. Let your yes to Jesus actually mean no to something. Let your yes to Jesus actually mean no to something. This works out to be very personal. Because a lot of times, uh, there are going to be people in the room right now who are allowed to paint with colors you're not allowed to paint with. Be okay with that. Like, there, there are certain people who have said yes to Jesus, and because they said yes to Jesus, um, uh, certain things just got put off limits for them. And it may not even be the same things that are off limits for you. Let it be that way. But let your heart say a deep, deep yes to Jesus. Let there, be, let there be that submission to Jesus. Let the life of God begin to come into your own life. People love it when you don't have an agenda. It becomes attractive to unbelievers. Um, so three questions for, for action. Three Three questions for reflection. If you have a pen or paper, you should write these down. If you have an iPhone, you should type them on your notes app. You should set it to your home screen. And you should deal with it this week. Three questions. Uh, Number one, um, am I being assimilated? 1A. 1B, where? If you've got a little bit of courage, you should ask yourself and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, am I being assimilated? 
If you're really courageous, ask him where. He will show you. Have you lost your distinctiveness? Has your yes to Jesus run a little shallow? Number two, um, it's kind of the other side of that question. Am I living religiously isolated? Do unbelievers like me? Do unbelievers like me? And by the way, when I, t- when I ask the question, do unbelievers like me? I'm not asking, do all unbelievers like you? <laughs> That's never going to happen. That's another trap, okay? You're never even going to get most of the people to like you. So let's just be okay with that. But do unbelievers like you? Does, your, does, does the drug dealer who lives three streets back, does he like you? Like, could you talk? How's business? I don't know. It's it's a good opener. And then number three, not a question, just a statement. Uh, Vineyard, let's redefine holiness as being set apart for God rather than a checklist of things we don't do. It's time to redefine holiness as, as to God rather than from things. Amen? Amen. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Poor baby. Hack it out. Hey, before we turn the meeting out completely over and, and, and we just break things up, um, is there anybody here who just needs to say yes to Jesus? You, you've just never said yes to Jesus and you need to. Uh, anybody here who's never said yes to Jesus in your life and, and, you, and you know you need to. In fact, even while I've been talking, you've just, you felt a heavy weight of, of love and nervousness just come over your whole body. Uh, what I'm talking about here is uh, in the Southern Baptist realm. I'm talking about getting saved. You might need to get saved. If you do, just stand up right where you're at. We occasionally do this. I do the worst altar calls in the world. Uh, I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to beg you. If it's you, though, just stand up. We want to we wanna pray for you at the end of the meeting. Awesome. We'll move on. Hey, why don't the rest of you stand up? Why don't you put your hand on your heart? You have a word? You have a word? Awesome. Father, we love you this morning. Thanks for being with us. God, we ask that, that, you, would, um, that you would come to us, God, and that we would be a people who, who have a, a giant yes in our hearts. A yes to you, God. A yes that redefines every area of life, God. God, we want to give you the yes that has a million no's behind it. Father, right now I ask that you would give us strength to say yes to you in a new way. God, I ask that you would, that you would anoint us with the beauty of holiness. God, we, we want to be set apart, distinct, unique, other people. God, we want to be uh, welcomed by sinners and yet not assimilated. We want to reflect your son, Jesus. And so, God, right now we ask for that grace. God, for people in the room who have been assimilated, God, would you wake us up? 
God, would you show us specifically where we've been co-opted by the carrot? God, for people in the room who are living religiously isolated, who have who have just walked in the opposite of culture thinking that that was going to be their salvation and have honestly just missed you on the path, have lost joy, there's nothing attractive, it's just all hard work, God, I ask that you would renew them as well and that you would give us the real deal. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need ministry this morning, if you're sick in your body, we've got a ministry team right here. We want to pray for you. Uh, If your life is just going bad and you need the Lord to turn the tide, come on up. If you need to respond to the message, these people are here for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Amen. The Mass has ended.